the Filmmakers Podcast exists thanks to your support. If you'd like to ensure that we can keep on exploring the filmmaking world with you, subscribe to our Patreon. The Pod Fix Network. Hello and welcome to episode 284 of the Filmmakers Podcast. And this podcast is really for anyone who dreams of becoming a filmmaker, of getting their story out there, who has maybe 10 scripts written or unwritten. It's for the old heads of the industry, who has made maybe five, 10 features or TV shows, who wants to keep learning and challenging themselves. And for people who love hearing how movies get made and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble uh, I am Giles Alderson, my writer, director and producer. I am Dom Lenoir, writer, producer, director and punner. All round great hunk. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, that was a compliment you didn't expect, Whoa. wasn't it? That was my first compliment from you, I think. Yeah, Jesus. Well, probably. Yeah, thank you. First one you deserve. On the show today, we have the fantastic writer director Natalie B. and Carey. Natalie is the director of the short films The Crossing, In the Flesh, Gibberish, and she was a co-director of the documentary I Was Here. And then she's the writer and director of the feature films Nocturnal and Wolf. Nocturnal stars Laurie Canaston, Sadie Frost, Lauren Coe, and Cosmo Jarvis. And the feature film Wolf, which is out now, uh, wherever you get your fantastic films. And it stars Real Life Wolves. It does. Terry Notary, Paddy Considine, George McKay, and Lily Rose Depp. Wolf is a howlingly good film. Woohoo! Produced by her production company, Feline Films. Yes, which is one of the things we're going to talk about with her partner, Jesse Fisk. We also talk about how to manage working with nudity on set, what it was like actors playing humans playing animals also what it was like with casting and working with the fabulous shakira shakira darling we also dive deep into how she made nocturnal her 200 grand debut movie how she got the bbc internship and why it was easier with her latest feature wolf she also goes into how she attached lily rose death to the film losing her lead actor and lucking out with george mckay and she talks about the importance of set design which, in a film where there's animals, is quite important, especially for the badgers. <laughs> Why? Badgers have sex. Oh! <laughs> Dom, you're fired. Uh, we also, oh my god. Oh, it's so bad, it's good. Um, we, we also talk about um, dealing with mental health, how she likes to work with her cameras, and the importance of rehearsal. All of that is to come on this week's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. So... What Giles wants to badger us with is, <laughs> is that he is no stranger to filmmaking. Oh, nice, nice. I see where you're going with this. Um, he's made his bed and he's going to lie in it. Mm, even better. The film is called The Stranger in Our Bed, which uh, Giles directed mm-hmm. sometime maybe last year. I had the privilege of visiting the set with, where there were no badgers, although there could have been because it was a countryside manor. And it was a very, very pleasant affair. Yeah, it's all about you right now. And uh, Giles was remarkably competent. But <laughs> I'll take that. I, I managed to I managed to, to, to watch the film and it was actually it was actually pretty good. That, uh, I'll take the compliment. Pretty good. Dom Lamar, <laughs> the filmmakers podcast. <laughs> And Dom and and the the film is currently available this week. Uh, has just released on Showtime in the USA, which is pretty exciting. And it's also coming to the UK with Signature uh, very soon. Was it September or is it is it even sooner? It is. Oh my God, Dom! Thank you so much for bringing it up. I wasn't going to. Um... <laughs> 
But yes, I'm super excited. The Stranger in Our Bed. I've been talking about it now for the last two years on the pod about uh, dropping it in now and again, making this uh, movie. It is out now on Showtime. It's Showtime. It's Showtime because it is available now in the US of A. Do go watch, do support. And if you like it, uh, write something nice. If you don't, shut the fuck up. Um, but it was a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And I'm absolutely delighted. The crew were incredible. Cast are amazing. I'm very, very proud of what we managed to achieve on the budget we had and the time we had and yeah it's out show time and it'll be out in the uk september the 5th i'm sure i'll be promoting the shit out of it uh if you want to go on my socials but do support if you can love it uh, we will be doing a load of focused podcasts on the stranger in bed very soon maybe too many but who knows <laughs> yeah maybe too many but hey it's my podcast do what i want right <laughs> dom what have you been up to well i'm in uh, in guildford at the moment in a lovely four-star hotel been enjoying the spa today which has been very nice how nice you clean those feet <laughs> i'm working in the aviation department uh, of a, a tv show that's filming at the the fabulous aviation filming uh, which is at Dunsfold Airfield can't actually say what the TV series is yet but it's uh, it's a pretty cool real life story and Master Woodley as I like to call him he's ace isn't he he is (laughs) he's a top gun guy he runs this fancy section of the airfield there and he's got a couple of dumbo jets Uh, that would be even more impressive if he had dumbo jets if he had dumbo jets yeah all the big big elephants in fact we used one of his aeroplanes on Walls of War. You did, yes. At, at did. my recommendation, if I if he, I may say there so. There you go. Anthony runs this uh, this section of the airport. He's got a couple of jumbo jets, uh, a couple of private jets, like helicopters, choppers, Hueys, nice big runway, etc. Control tower. And uh, he's had some pretty big films there. What, Walls of War, for one. Uh, other than small independent film, Walls of War. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Right? I mean, yes, let's go for the bigger ones. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was thinking more Black Widow, but but sure. But um, sure. Wolves of War. Wolves yeah. of War, Black Widow. Yeah. So a lot of uh, a lot of Marvel stuff actually takes place there. It, it's the best. Wow. Uh, it's the best airfield for filming in in, in certainly in the county maybe even England. So that's basically been my life, is, is having a, a good good jolly down the airfield and eating very well and, and enjoying a four-star hotel. Great story, bro. Do they have a website? It's kind of aviation filming or aces high, depending on what you, what you Google. So uh, they're both different names for the same thing. And, and so the reason you're telling us you're in a hotel in Guildford, working on this uh, TV program, working with aces high, is because you don't have your mic with you and therefore you're recording this on your iPhone. Do you want to apologise to the listeners for your bad uh, sound? I would like to apologise for my my lovely suite um, <laughs> after having a very nice three course meal. Alright, that's a great apology. People have forgiven you. Thank you uh, to those of you who came down to the scary success event the other night, run by Peter Story from Greenlit. Um, I was. Honoured to be on the panel with such esteemed filmmakers and distributors as Sarah Appleton, Paul McAvoy from Frightfest, Julian Richards from Jingo Films, and of course Alex Austin and Keir Stewart as well, and writer and director Jake West of Evil Aliens fame. What an audience. Uh, so many amazing questions and such a great event. And we recorded it. So those of you who couldn't make it, we will be putting it out as an episode very soon. We are backlogged at the moment with some amazing guests coming up but maybe three weeks four weeks something like that keep an eye on our socials and also keep an eye on our socials because we will be doing more live events just like scary success very soon but for now thank you for those who came down thank you for those who came up to say hello what a networking event it was afterwards great to see so many faces old and new shout outs on this week's podcast go to uh, Mitchell Tolliday Alex DeCuffer Lucille Howe Ben McHugh Dr. Addy a Peregrine Kitchen of fellows and Q scripts we mentioned them last week the site isn't ready this week so I'll be promoting that from next week this is our new service for screenwriters we are involved with and also shout outs go to Eric Garson whose Indiegogo campaign called The Middleman is hopefully Indiegogoing somewhere he is indeed because he's funding right now it's called The Middleman and he's got amazing perks uh, it's a micro budget British crime feature setting Reading featuring cast and crew all from Reading and will be directed by Eric Garson a uh, link to that is in the show notes do go check it out do go support if you can good luck to you Eric and another shout out so Screen Skills who are a training resource uh, in the UK 
very good one. Uh, if you want to learn or get some sponsorship or funding to train or learn some new skills in the film or television, high-end television world, have released a big report and it kind of goes into some important subjects really about how much spend is being made and how much or how little is being invested in the infrastructure needed to get the right number of crew in the UK to support all these productions that are coming through. So it's, a, it's an interesting and important read and Screen Skills is a good resource if you're looking to train yourself up and you're not sure where or how and you want a mentor mm -hmm. or a mentee, why not do yep. both? That's the, that's the hero's way. It is the hero's way and you can find that article on our The Wrap Up uh, which is our weekly newsletter and it comes straight to your inbox and it's free. It's basically us curating the latest news of the week to help you as independent filmmakers tell you what news is going on that we think might be interesting to you link to that is in the show notes do go sign up and they'll come straight into your inbox for free every week and that article uh, that dom just said from screen skills is on there final shout out goes to the new haven chronicles we got an email from bill pool they're creating a full-length feature film uh, to jump their movie franchise new haven chronicles and include more movies merchandise and a space in the metaverse governed by new haven city council and it's involving nfts you're interested in that you want to support do go check out their twitter at new haven nfts uh link to that is in the show notes right dom lenoir right john salderson love of my podcasting life hunk of the day let's get to today's episode here it is this is our episode with the delectable natalie biancheri and some lovely animals enjoy Hi. How were your screenings the other night? Yeah, good. Stratford and in Soho. How did they go? Well, yeah, good. Yeah, they were really, yeah, yeah, they were really nice. We had nice, like, packed audiences, and yeah, it was good. Oh, brilliant! Congrats. How did you find, you know, making films in the UK? You know, being Italian and and coming to this country. So I came to study at eighteen, and I went to to King's College, and I studied literature. So I have been here like quite a while, and yet I think. What I'd say is like, you're, I think if you haven't done the film school and that thing, you are always a bit outside the kind of click mm. here. Like I do find it like very cliquey mm. UK film industry. So that's actually kind of why I went to Ireland in a way, like, because, you know, I was living here and, and I made Nocturnal, my first film here. And, but even there, like the producer who, who's American, like we were quite outside the system. We tried and tried to get funds, like everything, every application possible, BFI, this, that, nothing, you know, and, and it's not to say it's like, there's anything wrong with the system. They just probably didn't like the film very much, but you know, you always feel like a little bit cut out somehow. I mean, it's probably a bit of both. <laughs> Maybe a bit of both. Let's say that. Let's, I'll comfort myself like that. But so he managed to find kind of, I think some American private investor. I mean, it was like a tiny budget. It was, it was, mm. it was like 200,000. So for nocturnal, for nocturnal, mm. yeah, for my first film. And, you know, but somehow we did it and, and, and everything. And that was kind of my UK, I guess, experience of filmmaking. And, but at that point, I was already, I'd already kind of semi-moved to Ireland, so I was sort of back and forth. And I'd started this company called Feline Films with an Irish producer. And I sort of thought, you know, I think this is going to be the, like, this is a better place for me to live and, and make films in because it just felt a little bit more accessible in terms of just being able to also, like, speak to the people from Screen Ireland. And when we pitched Wolf, they were really interested and they just kind of supported it immediately. So, you know, I owe them a lot, actually, because that was, like, the first kind of, place that gave me like re you know real funding like real public funding for the film for filmmaking and stuff so how did that feel because obviously it's so difficult to get anything made generally it's really hard uh, and then if someone believes in you and your project and manages to find any kind of money that you can make it is incredible i'm sure that i think you guys know as filmmakers like wait it's like it's so unreal the fact that i mean i just i really never thought i mean i you know i came from literature and then i i'd worked at the bbc like i'd applied for like zillion internships and finally got into to one, I wanted to do news. And, and then at some point, kind of along the way, I started getting into film and making shorts and, you know, on the side. But like, I never actually thought I was going to make a feature film. Like, really, I just thought it was this impossible, impossible dream. Like, so, I mean, even when Nocturnal, like, it's just, I never really believed it. I was like, for sure, at some point, like, even when we were shooting, I was like, for sure, this is like going to stop. It's, um, you know, so that was like the first, I mean, and that, yeah, the whole thing just felt very, very sort of surreal and kind of 
bizarre. And then, and obviously then with Wolf, because it was a bit more of an official setup and, and situation, like, like incredible, I guess is the only way, you know, when, when you get your first round of development, like, I don't know if anything like equates the joy, like I'm about to have a child, maybe that will compare, but like so far, nothing in my life is like, you know, given me that level of, of, of just, yeah, just huge satisfaction, I suppose, but also enormous fear then, because you're like, God, like everyone's going to realize like I'm bluffing, like, I don't know how to do this. Like I'm never going to, you know, and it was great because with Wolf, we kind of, I think with Nocturnal, it took so long and kind of, there were so many disappointments and then, in, in, in just trying to get it funded. And then with Wolf, we actually had this like relatively easy journey with the film to mm. a certain extent, you know, like in, in the sense of, I think, you know, we pitched it, we, got, we immediately got development first round, we got um, production funding and they were very generous with that, like really good amount. We got Polish money straight away, Euromage straight away. So of course it still takes like two, three years. I mean, whatever. I mean, the whole mm. process takes five, but you know, mm. it didn't feel like you're beating down with a stick every time. Like, and then you have to kind of lift yourself up and be like, I'll try this. And it was in that sense, smooth, you know? Mm. And it must've helped massively. The nocturnal was a, a success in the terms of it got very well reviewed. It did very well mm. in the festivals. So it must have been easy is the wrong word, but like you said, it felt like an easier process to go through the system, even though it took two to three years. Do you think Nocturnal did well? that you think that that helped yeah for sure i think it also just gave people a bit of confidence that i could especially because i think mm. people really like the performances in nocturnal and so i think that gave people a sense of i mean it's such an ambitious project wolf in you know in many ways and that the huge question is like what is it going to look like and is it going to be ridiculous ludicrous like are we going to believe them are we not because i was also quite like clear that the tone wasn't comedic and it wasn't like a lantimus film or um didn't have that detachment so i think just the fact that nocturnal had like i think mm. cosmo and lauren were brilliant in it that really helped wolf i loved it it's beautifully shot fascinating performances and, I, and i'm like okay why and wow and and just so many things were going through my head okay this is really interesting just just as a filmmaking perspective to try and make a film like this and i know you were researching for a documentary uh, right when you came you know the was it species dysmorphia is that correct yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it's a real thing right where people believe they're animals so for people who don't know if you don't mind could you describe wolf for people just an outline yeah so so i guess i did it's the story about a boy uh jacob who believes that he's a wolf and gets sent to a clinic which um which cures what we sort of find out is a sort of an illness called species dysphoria and in this in this clinic which is sort of I think we recognize elements of the real world, but also feel sort of slightly suspended in time, like not necessarily something we can recognize. There's mostly teenagers who all sort of think and feel that they're different animals and they go through these this, these different forms of therapy to kind of cure them and, and make them be human again, I suppose. And some of them are quite violent and and uh and sort of like increasingly strange let's say uh but but and in this clinic he meets a patient um who sort of is she a patient is she not she's sort of shrouded in mystery um who will know as the wild cat and a sort of friendship slash infatuation begins between them and kind of the question of the film is you know can he kind of renounce his true self you know and conform to the norms of society once there was a place in the woods where they sent people who didn't fit into the real world. Welcome, Jacob. Species identity disorder can be cured so that a person who thinks themselves an animal can resume a happy, healthy, and rewarding life. I want to do it. It's the best thing for everyone. You're all gonna end up wonderful human beings. They say the wolf and the wildcat are natural enemies. But they're wrong. How long have you been here? Since I can remember. I'm putting you out of your misery. We call him the zookeeper. Keep clear of him. Ever think of running away? Only one person ever did. I've always had this feeling, these instincts. Stop. You're gonna get us caught. 
sort of pitching a project like this and you're going to like cast is it is it that the casting agents are, are kind of thinking okay this is really original i'm going to send this straight to my thing or is there is there kind of a bit of a pitching that has to go on where you you have to explain it because maybe they don't quite get it or they're thinking okay this is quite out there for my um my actors like how was that whole casting process for you on this to be honest i didn't have the best of luck um with casting directors because the first two that I um, that I had attached, we just didn't sort of see eye to eye. I mean, no, actually, the first one sorry, was brilliant, but she was too busy, and so we started the process, and then kind of it just wasn't possible. And the second one, no wonder she's never going to listen to this anyway, so it's grand. But like, I think just I have a you know with Nocturnal and in general, I like to see a lot of tapes. I go through the material myself like very intensely, and, and you know I I consider it really a director's job, I guess. I don't think of like the casting director having, I'm not saying not having any input, but really I think of them as the person who, you know, finds me the people, but then I want to see everything and I want to see a lot. And, and I guess, and this was sort of, you know, I think they just felt like for what they were getting was like, not, you know, it was too much work and, and, and like a crazy, you know, I was crazy demanding or something to when, to me, it seems so obvious, like you're casting a film with like, you know, five, six teenagers who are supposed to behave like animals. Like I need to see everyone and everything. And, you know, it's so challenging. So, and then I went back to Shakira who did Nocturnal. Mm-hmm. Who is, who has been on this podcast. Oh, Shakira Dowling. She? Shakira Dowling. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. yeah. She's really good. And, um, and also like, you know, who knew how I wanted to work and, and stuff. And so, and, and exactly. And so we were able to just kind of, you know, even though it was a lot, it was a lot, a lot of work and probably too much in a sense for her as well. Like, but at least we could just kind of share the load and a lot of tapes came in. And so it was, yeah, mostly, I think everyone was tapes. And then there was a few like, you know, with parents, Lola, um, I'd done a film with her. So I was like, I think she's great. Perfect. You know, I knew she'd be brilliant. And I just offered it to her. And then with Lily's role, that was actually came through her agent. So she was suggested um, to me by by him. That makes a difference, doesn't it? Sometimes actually rather than you approaching, if you get oh, yeah. an agent coming back to you saying, oh, well, how about this actor? It kind of puts you in a... I don't know, a different position from going, oh, please, could we see them? It suddenly yeah. turns into, oh, okay, thank you. It changes the goalposts a little bit, and I quite like that. And the that. dynamic, yeah. Yeah, Lily Rose Depp was amazing in this film as well, so totally understand yeah. why, you know, you go, okay, sure, I'll happy see her. Exactly, yeah, it was a really, it was really, really great that way, because, you know, basically he, he'd read the script, I don't know how someone, uh, through someone, agents, you know, at that point, like, agents had the script around, and he was like, I have the perfect person for this. And I actually didn't know Lily as an actor, you know, as an actor mm-hmm. or even as a, a model or anything, really. I didn't know anything about her. So we had a coffee and then she taped for me and then we met and we did, I wanted to see if I, like we had chemistry and if we could work together. So we did an audition in Paris and I thought she really, really nailed it. But it was like, there was quite a process there and she was super open to it. You know, when sometimes you get actors that are like, no, I won't tape and stuff. And like, mm-hmm. but, but, but why, why wouldn't you, you know? Mm-hmm. We want to see you. Yeah. We need to know. I want to see you as an animal. <laughs> yeah. We need to, especially with something like this, because they're animals. So they're, they're in that mindset. So you've got, you can't just turn up and go, okay, we're going to cast a name. They don't want to audition 
position and they turn up and they, they're not fully committed to that because this is a huge undertaking. How did you approach that with George McKay and you know the rest of your team and Lily? An amazing cast that you had with this um, was the ensemble team. What was the casting process like when you said, okay, so I, did you get them to be animals? How did you talk to them about that? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was the auditions were crazy. Like, I did ask mm -hmm. for animal movement, but, you know, and... Yeah, I saw some of like the most bonkers tapes I'll ever see in my life, I can assure you. But also like some really inspired ones, like mm -hmm. um, Dara, who plays the squirrel, you know, he did his casting tape, like, because I, you know, I do a lot of things like with, with actors now and like, you know, just like chats and talks with them. And I often like tell them, you know, like if you have like a good instinct for something, like just run with it. Like he just, he did his tape and then he took out these, these peanuts and he just kind of... Like, She's got nuts in her hand, by the way, in front of her face. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then she was just chewing on them in, in the on the tape. Yeah, I don't know if he did them whole, but he just looks like a like really looked like a squirrel. It was incredible, and I was like, it was eleven p.m. and I was super tired, and he looked, to be honest, like quite like older than the part I'd imagine. And but I just saw him do this little like you know, exactly, peanut munching. Squirreled them away. <laughs> exactly, squirreled them away. And uh, and I was like, who is this guy? You know, gotta mm. see him. So so there was, there was a lot of that. And then with George, it was like, you know, because of the lead, because he was the lead and because, you know, the, the role is so... Was Lily on board before George just to... She was, yeah, yeah, she was. Yeah, and actually, funnily enough, before George, there was someone else attached to the project for a long time right in the development process actually barry Keown was going to play oh, yeah who's amazing and yeah who is talented. amazing who is amazing yeah fantastic um although now like i obviously can't really imagine the film i can't imagine anyone but george george is so good in the role so i'm sure great. barry would have been amazing but some things have meant to be yeah. right so when barry pulled out how did that make you feel because at the time you've you've cast someone and you really want that to you know you've, you've got it in your mind you've blocked out the shots the scenes how it's going to work talk us through your sort of mental state at that point when you've lost your lead actor yeah it's awful i mean it is like it's just it's so difficult because of course you have to rethink the whole film in so many ways and that's why everybody says never write for an actor i'm like it's the next tip i'm going to give myself but it mm. is also hard not to do it but and uh, and i think the also the very very difficult thing was then Somehow, also, to be fair, Barry hadn't actually performed as a wolf for me, you know, in a sense. Ah. So, in you know, we hadn't actually, like, rehearsed or anything. I just kind of knew that he was, like, going to be, would be, would be great for the role. And, you know, I'm sure he would have been great. But it was based on an illusion, effectively. And as we know, like, illusions are forever more seductive than reality. <laughs> so, to come from my utopian idea of what I was going to have to then, like, casting tapes, casting tapes, casting tapes, you know, hundreds with people behaving like wolves i mean it was just heartbreaking because right. i was like i'm I, I don't have a film here you know mm. um so it, what was what was kind of great with with george was to be able to actually kind of like also have that huge body of work of his oh, you know to go into ned kelly was just coming out and mm. like then talking about it and then kind of he immediately did a session with our movement trainer like very early on and, and, and to just like see his physicality and motion. So it was like a little bit less jarring, I guess, than, than the kind of casting tape process right. um, that we had with, you know, that I've been sort of like going through for months after, after Barry's departure. Was it an easy, an easy process to get George involved? I mean, did, did it kind of go through to the agent and the agent just said, yep, yeah, I'm sending that on. Yep, he loves it. Or was there a bit more sort of negotiation and backwards and forwards that was required? I think like one of the first things was for us to meet. Um, I think he'd read the script and was really interested. But like the very, I think the very, very first step was me and him just having a chat about it. Because it's also a very, you know, the script was always very mysterious. Like people could interpret it in so many different ways. Like what is the tone? What is your position? You know, how, you know, how do you want to make this? So those were first conversations. But I mean... Have you guys ever had George on, on your podcast or have you ever met him? No, not yet. And I've actually not met him. 
No. He's just genuine. Like he is the nicest human being you'll ever meet in your life. Really? That's good to know. Because he's on a list of ours for a, a future film. And uh, I mean, like, to, you know, pretty top of that list. Obviously, he was amazing in 1917. I've just seen Wolf and he's amazing in that. So I was like, okay, it'd be really interesting. The fact that you're saying he's amazing. He's just a fantastic, fantastic person. And um, he, he's, he doesn't kind of bullshit you. So even then, like, after, I think after we met, like, and just we had to take it to the next stage and do the workshop and this and that it was like 24 hours he was very clear 24 hours like let me just think about it and then done you know and then he gave me an answer and then it was kind of and then he's fully there for you you know anything right. anytime any you know so how did you go from that heartbreak like you say and then suddenly getting george and moving your mindset into what george would bring to that to the role of jacob how how did that manifest for you is sort of like that because i think something's really important and i suppose what i'm trying to get at is the mental health of us as filmmakers and how difficult it can be when we're going through the casting process we haven't even got to the trying to raise money and is our film going to happen and as you said nocturnal could fall down straight away and that worry of it and i suppose i'm supposed trying to get to that transition for you of the disappointment and then then it moving back up into something much more positive and how that felt and how you managed to put your brain in the right space for it. I think the fact is that we didn't we were supposed to shoot in April and all this was happening in February. So Wow. Okay. Oh gosh. Yeah, that's a quick oh my gosh. So you at that point you're thinking the film might totally fall apart because you've just lost your lead. Well, no, sorry, we lost so we lost Barry in October. Oh, okay. But then by the time we started chatting with George it was like end of January, early February. So in, in between, so I guess I had this kind of look, I mean, it was a very, very difficult time. I guess you're still making a film. So there is that, you know, which is like, you know, so I think, you know, it's such, it, it is such a huge privilege to be able to make a film that I think even in the lowest moments of like, when you've lost like the actor that you want and that this, and that we had the pandemic and stuff like, I think knowing that there's people who have given you money, who believe in the project, like that this thing is going to happen, you mm. know, and believing in the project that you want to make and knowing that like, you know, everybody goes through shit and everybody is going to lose an actor, lose DP, lose this, lose that. Yes. I think you kind of just sort of pull your socks up a bit, but I think having the money is like a, is like a big thing. It's huge. It's huge. It's so much harder to get things moving when you don't have the money in place and you're kind of playing this chicken and egg game. And I, I find like that's, that's, you know, go back to what Giles said about mental health and, and <laughs> struggling and being a filmmaker. Like that's, that's the hardest point I feel is when you don't have the, you don't have those kind of core blocks in place because mm -hmm. you can do a lot when you've got money, you've got, you've got kind of options, even if you, you're having your, you know, these tragic decisions happen to you. Agreed. I mean, I think absolutely like in that respect, I think nocturnal was more stressful because there was always this like, you know, is it actually real? Like mm -hmm. even when I was like in prep, which was only like three weeks before shooting, I still didn't really believe it was going to happen because I couldn't like tangent, but I knew that like, you know, Screen Island, Your Magic, these people had signed contracts. Like it was there. Mm -hmm. So somehow this film was going to happen. And then, I mean, I was like, obviously like very, very nervous. I'd say like more than kind of the despair, just like very apprehensive about like the time that we had that started becoming a concern because we were going to shoot in April. 20th of mm. April, we were supposed to start shooting. And, you know, we just didn't have as much, like I'd always envisioned like huge rehearsal time, huge this, huge that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so, so, and then I remember we, me and George went to, or he had the screening of Ned Kelly somewhere, I think in the Dublin Film Festival and hearing him how he prepared for like 10 years for this role and stuff. I just felt like sick to my stomach. And I was like, oh my God. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. sacrificing everything. Ten, ten, ten minutes. <laughs> you know, so, so I think there was a lot of that, but then what happened to us in our specific case and I think it was the biggest blessing is that you know COVID-19 happened mm -hmm. so we effectively did get four months rehearsal ah because the Sunny did what he pushed back a little bit because of August yeah oh right so during that time you were yeah because okay, it was 2020 right so it was yes. the first lockdown so it was like that moment where people are like there's this virus that maybe is bad mm -hmm. and you said there you got four more months i suppose of rehearsal how did you manage to do rehearsals during that time because that's not easy thing to sort of organize during 
lockdown. I know for my film, what we we were quite reasonably soon after lockdown as well. There wasn't just no rehearsal. Nah, you're just gonna have to get on with it. This is the way it's gonna be. You know, it's, you're gonna have to rehearse in the morning just before your shots. How did you manage to to get animal rehearsals? In? Oh, when I say that we had three months of rehearsal, I guess what I mean is like George basically was crawling around Hampstead Heath for for three months, <laughs> and Lily was Got crawling you. around her flat in Paris for three months, and all I mean all the cast. I mean it was a sort of golden situation in which all these actors who would be normally so busy mm. going from one project to another actually yeah. the only thing and no one was booking anything else because it's yeah. a pandemic mm-hmm. and this is this last beacon of hope is like to make this film and so you know they were all really like dedicated so i you know i would zoom with them constantly like constantly like i mean with uh, particularly with george also because his character required such complete metamorphosis into a wolf um we would really like every day just exchange videos and notes and thoughts and you know zoom in with terry once in a while so we were able to kind of keep that up and also you know other things like they would do diaries you know i would set little tasks like just trying to kind of keep the the spirit alive you know Mm. of of the film and just give you know give exercises or and and with the dp we basically we did we went through the whole film scene by scene and kind of we had um so the production designer who would have basically been doing a hundred commercials had all this time to do sketch ups of all of the sets, which we then used to block all of the shots with the cinematographer. Amazing on Zoom. So basically, I mean, the level I had like this really it was like a bible of of, of two hundred pages with like every photograph of every you know. And then we when we went when we went to Ireland again, we always knew we were going to have like the rehearsal time for me was like super important. So mm. we still had, I mean, if I think I had with the ensemble, I had a week's rehearsal with a group of core cast with Lily and when Lily was there for two weeks before and George was there for three weeks before. So, and Terry came, I think two weeks before. So I had like me and George had a week of just again, character mm. work, this and that. And then kind of Terry arrived and I mean, he's incredible, you know, so so we'd already done a week with him in Dublin with George before the pandemic. Right. So that was done. So the basis was there. So that was also really useful. Yes. Yeah, so when he's around Hampstead Heath, I love the idea of George McKay just prowling literally around Hampstead Heath. I, I didn't see him on the Heath as a wolf. I feel, no. I feel like I missed out. Don was there in the bushes <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> night. You had to go at five in the morning. That's That was oh, his okay, prowling right. time. Oh, Dom was at five in the uh, evening. Yeah, five yeah, in the evening, yeah. <laughs> what do you do then in those rehearsal sessions? Because it's a luxury to get, you know, what you got, you know, that time to rehearse. What did you do as a director during that time then? Obviously you worked on character and you worked on depth and what, what else? What else was the playing things that some of our listeners might find really interesting so so i think we i mean a lot of it was like a lot of improvisation so i mean i think the first day we just did also icebreakers you know because there was there was there was a few quite a few of them like and Senan was nine years old you know and mm-hmm. and uh elsa who plays horse so Senan was is dark and elsa who plays horse you know she had she's not an actress she actually i'd i oh. cast her from a documentary called hobby horse revolution where she she practices hobby horsing which is basically when the bottom half of of your legs are a horse and your top half is the rider and she's finished she never left finland so and then she comes to ireland in the middle of a pandemic to shoot a film with like lily Westcheck <laughs> and george so you know and then there was like lola and fiona who are like super close friends and had done like films together and 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 quarantined together so there was that so i think there were so many different units and energies that needed bonding so the very first one i mean we just played games really we just played loads of games and um i adore participating in such activities because uh, you get to be a child again right yeah we get to play it's amazing it's so fun so like you know what you know what animal are you know again you everyone had to be each other's animals or or this you know just a lot of little little things it was, it was great crack and then we did what became kind of went down in sort of our little shoot history is like this insane four and a half hour improvisation with all of the cast in which I was playing the therapist. 
um, also a role I loved to play. It was my favorite to, to take on. Well, it's a good way as a director. You're kind of a bit of a therapist anyway, mm, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're taking on that therapist role of people's problems and emotions, especially the actors. Yes. And so uh, it looks perfect that you did that. And also, I got to like be like also like the you know the crazy because they obviously in this setup this like crazy therapist. Crazy over right? there. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. It was super fun, and uh, and like and then I would sort of sometimes like just break out to give them like little directions, like start a rebellion or do mm. this, you know. And it just went on and on. And I think honestly, I think we discovered so many little gems and such, and it just gave me the chance to like observe them, and there was no judgment, and you know who was bonding with who, and this and that. And you know, I rewrote the script after the end of my three weeks of rehearsal. I rewrote the script and. And just added in little details and, you know, had so like had such a wealth of, of, of things to think of or places to go to. And I mean, you know, so many re- the rehearsals with Lillian George, for example, a, a lot of those with Terry as well, where he just got them to like do chemistry, you know, dancing together, moving together. I mean, you know, just looking into each other's eyes, like Terry, for example, he's fascinating to watch him work. And, you know, that's a really like a priceless experience because so much of it is just about letting go, mm. you know, really letting go of yourself. Cause what is an animal? It's like n- n- someone who's not like constantly not like, self, yeah. yeah, exactly. Self-reflection, mental masturbation, you know, all of that. And so, but how hard it is to step out of your body. I mean, when you try and do them yourself, you're like, Oh God, like often you end up crying or laughing or mm-hmm. so, so that was great. Like that yes. was really, really brilliant. Um, the whole act of getting everyone to be an- animals must've been quite freeing in a sense for them as actors. And, and maybe, you know, that environment you created allowed them to really feel like they could do anything. You know, usually film is like kind of you have certain rules and you can push things a certain distance, but there's this kind of these boundaries. Did that feel like you really were exploring and pushing through those things by allowing them to be those creatures? I think it, yeah, I think it really, really did. I mean, and obviously the thing is for each act, I mean, I think in the rehearsal time there was huge freedom. And I think that was just really, really helpful to get everyone to feel safe then obviously on set every character has a very different relationship with their animal so you know I had to that we then had to go back to kind of what that was because German Shepherd obviously can't go wild or indulge in such you know in fact I had to like almost refrain him from being too good at being a German Shepherd (laughs) you know so there's like the tricky the trickiness there Um, but but yeah I do I do and also you know we were we were isolated together in a hotel during the pandemic. We couldn't even go out to have a coffee. I'm sure you you said you made a film in COVID. So you know that like when you're in this bubble, mm-hmm. you can't break the bubble. You can't do anything. And that, you know, that was like, it was a bit of a surreal experience. Again, like this hotel did have like Lily and George and Lola and Fionn crawling around in the mornings. And, and there was absolutely nothing to do, nowhere to go for however many weeks. Mm. You know, we just placed charades on Friday night. And so... <laughs> Which animal am I today? <laughs> yeah. Which film is this? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I remember in uh, drama school, we had to, we had this moment uh, where we all had to be animals i say moment it was kind of just, it's long and, and if you didn't fully commit to it you just felt stupid and i remember thinking i'm going to be a really simple animal so i thought i'll be a tortoise so i don't have to do anything it was just lazy at the time and eventually they said no you can't be because it's a, a zoo you've got to be a deer or something so i was a deer and i do remember that the lion the person playing the lion escaped from their cage. Were you scared? <laughs> and yeah, we were all scared. Suddenly all the deer started freaking out and going in the back. This went on for hours, by the way, like yours did. And, and the lion ate a zebra. The actor, the, the person who was that zebra on the floor, had to stay on the floor for the next two hours dead. And we were just all like, what are we doing? What are we doing? People came and watched this shit. And that's like, we all felt so self-conscious, like you're saying. So you had to fully commit. And what I loved about this is the commitment. And I can even tell from rehearsals and what was going on that it, it must have been fascinating for you to watch these actors just encompass these characters and these animals so believably you know it's totally believable what they're doing and that must have been fascinating for you to watch that yeah super lucky i mean i think yeah i think it was a huge yeah just basically huge luck that every person who who, who decided to do this like really really believed in it and like was willing to just 
go for it and not feel, you know, and not feel stupid or self-conscious. And so, you know, I don't think there was ever, ever a moment of that, you know, of like, "Mm, I don't know about it, like never. I feel like a lot of that's probably down, down to you, but I also wonder like how much is down to how you imparted the tone. Because I, you know, as soon as I started the film, I was like, "This is this is quite an out there idea," but it's it's so naturally done that you kind of immediately get on board with it. Was that something you had to kind of explain to people like really early on? Is it something that sort of developed naturally, or were you always like crystal clear exactly how you'd approach? You know, how the animals were done, how seriously everyone was sort of playing everything. I think. I never sort of explained the general tone, but I did know from each one of them, like specifically what, what their character, what relationship their character had with their animal and what that meant to them and what that was going to be like in the place and, and so on. And so I think it, it kind of, I think they just understood from there. I mean, yeah, it was never, we never had to sort of have a real, have any real questions about the film. I think there was two things, like one being very, very precise and working very intensely with each of them uh, separately. And I think them feeling very safe in that and understanding, like, you know, with, I mean, Fionn's audition for, for German Shepherd, like it, he was the first one I, I cast. And I mean, he'd already like nailed it in the audition. So, but, but then I think, when me and him developed things like I wrote, you know, I would write to them like little emails from their, from their mothers or their fathers or, um, and they had to respond to me in character. It was just like a little like communication that, that, that we did. And it was so funny for me. I mean, it was just like brilliant, like on the set. Cause like, you know, it gave me again, ideas like Sofian who plays Rufus, who's German Shepherd, you know, his, um, his letter was like five paragraphs long, you know, and it was like, and I got a gold star to it, like full of lies. Like, and I made this new best friend called Jacob and da and um and so you know that that like buoyancy that comes with his character and how there is this tonal shift with him and and you know as i think and because he he's quite present in the beginning like that's a consequence you know because i do often get asked about tone in this film and it does yeah. confuse people and it makes people some people really pissed off and and uh but i i've never i never sort of like thought of it as I knew I wanted to take it very seriously, but if there's some things that are just very funny, I mean, what can I do? I mean, it wasn't really in my control. Like it was just, you know, these were those characters. Like I was just truthful to them. And then they were hilarious. Some of them, you know, or some circumstances are funny. So so I guess it's kind of a lot from the authenticity of what you created with individual people that informed, you know, how it, how it comes across. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think like, yeah, like everybody, like and me in first place, taking it extremely seriously, but taking it really seriously, I think also means being able to like have humor, of course, but yeah. just sort of like the seriousness of, um, of the concept. Like, I think Eileen once said to me, like, yeah, she, she just said, she's like, you just give such a specific note and you're so convinced. She's like that. I want to like dispute this, but then I think, what can I do? Like, she's clearly so convinced by this. So, yeah, so I guess that, like, yeah, the, maybe the conviction kind of yeah, helped them. And just just go back to the sort of the very early documentary leanings of um, this. I, how, how sort of did you feel compelled to kind of keep in much of what you'd been researching or did you kind of take a lot of creative license in terms of how far you pushed it? Very, like, a lot of creative license completely. But I think... For me, what was interesting about this early research, I mean, there's two things, you know, first of all, I realized I'm not making a film about species dysphoria as a real syndrome in today's world. That's a position I don't want to take that I don't have a specific opinion and point of view on. And I don't feel like I'm in the place to sort of represent that or make it, in fact, maybe the first film about it. So that was quite a conscious decision. But what I found, you know, very interesting about that research was just that. I realized again that this is like a, you know, it's a, it's a sort of, first of all, little known, but growing syndrome, but there's such a variety of, 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 of approaches and feelings to it because some people feel that they really, really are this animal and they inhabit it a hundred percent and they, you know, they're missing claws and, and it's a visceral, exactly like, let's say Jacob's character kind of experience and others for others, it's, it's very different. You know, the, the animal is quite clearly an avatar, you know, something that they've that they project themselves, their fears, their traumas, their life and a form of escapism. So, Mm. so I think, 
for me, the most interesting thing, and this was like already when I started conceiving the script, was thinking of these like, you know, we live in a world in which identity is like always at the forefront of every conversation. But it's very complicated identity as a topic because it's not just like be who you want to be. Like, and also there's, you know, there are consequences to having enormous choice and freedom to choose what you want to be. And 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 those things all now exist in the same space. And I mm. think, you know, that, that that was the film for me. And like oddly, like species dysphoria in this weird way represented that, you know, these different forms of relationships with our identity. And I didn't even then, even with this film, I don't have like a point of view necessarily. Of course, like, you know, institutionalization is disastrous. Mm-hmm. Like that is certainly a point of view. But, you know, what's going to happen to Jacob, you know, at the end of the film? Like, you know. Is is, is it a better life? After Nocturnal had done well, did you just start sending out this script early on? Did you start sending out the idea? How did you get Focus Features on board? How did you get Universal on board? Obviously, they might have come later, but let's talk about the process of you actually sending this out first. How you you approached that, how you actually got people to read this and be interested. I was writing Wolf while I was writing Nocturnal already. So so the two ah, things were happening okay. simultaneously. So right, by the right. time I started shooting Nocturnal, I'd gone in for production funding on Wolf. Mm-hmm. And by the time I locked the edit, I got the funds for Wolf already. Amazing. So I actually got it before... I think Celine, who is our exec from Screen Ireland, she did see a cut of Nocturnal. Mm-hmm. But I think in the end, they had also already decided to do this. So, so that was Queen Ireland and Polish Film Institute, actually. So in fact, the bulk. And then after that, in fact, come to think of it, I probably, yeah, I was I probably like sort of slightly didn't answer correctly your other answer, because when I think back to the very specific timeline, no, like I think the fact that I made Nocturnal and that that was done really helped. And you know what? And the success of it helped with Euromage mm-hmm. with that application, because I remember for that one, I do remember that was quite a while after it was like another seven, eight months. So the film had just premiered at BFI. And I remember we were collecting like quotes from reviews and sending them through like screen daily got this. We're amazing. Look at us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so that, that helped for your homage. And that was that hold. And then we've closed with your match. And, ba- and Banks said it already also come on. Was that anything cast dependent at all? Or was it just based purely on the script? And if you get certain cast? Well, we had, remember we had Barry at the time. So, ah, yes. so for sure he was an alert. He was Irish as well. But I also think, you know, they were very realistic. I mean, funders know that cast can come and go. So they're not like, I think... I think it was a disappointment when he 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 didn't do it. But I think, I mean, Celine was great, really. She always said, like, fuck it. Like, this film's going to be great anyways. Like, you know, she was, she, she's she super that. cool. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah, you want. Yeah, yeah. She, she really loved the project from the start. I mean, I remember in our first development meeting when I pitched it to her, she's like, ooh, this gives me the butterflies, you know? Like, so she just got it and mm. liked it. And I think, you know, if you have that, it's an uphill battle because yes, you'll get notes and yes, you'll get this, but you're not fighting against, like you're not convincing anyone, you know, mm-hmm. like there's a belief. So that was just luck really. Do you mean a downhill battle as opposed to, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, made, it made even harder. I always mix metaphors It was amazing. It was an uphill battle the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Even with these yeah. people, I wanted to make it harder for myself. <laughs> yeah. I always say like two fish with one stone. I don't know whatever it is. That's I a always great say saying. It's a great <laughs> saying. You can imagine I'm swimming down two little uh, fish with a stone go get off it's mine um, <laughs> did you always know the budget of the film did you always know what it could be or kind of did people present something of what you think you should make this for no I think Jesse always kind of had said it would, should be around the two million mark and I think that was like a little bit sort of dependent on the fact that it was a one location film and a little bit because it seemed you know she knew that she wanted to go to Ireland for majority get a minority and then fill some gaps and that mm-hmm. was like a realistic number it was also quite a realistic number for having come off a 200,000 
budget first feature, you know, like there was like a lot of, I suppose, practical decisions. And, um, and a lot of that went on cost. Yeah. Well, they all took like really small paychecks. I'll tell you that much. I'd say a lot of it went on COVID to be honest. Um, yes. but yeah, yeah, casting of course, just the sheer amount of cast and the rehearsal times and this, like for sure. And building the sets as well. I mean, or did you use real location? It was a real location. It was yeah, real it was, location. It looked incredible. But it was, yeah. I mean, Joe, it was a hotel. So like, I mean, we did like painted this, that, but his, his production design, but was so small for mm. what he did with it. I mean, it was just over hours and Joe fall over. Yeah. 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 It's a great name. Great name. I great know, name. It's a yeah. Great. It's a great name. He's brilliant as well. He yeah. did the lodgers, didn't he? In the far yeah. west. Yeah. He's yeah. been around a while. Great, great, great uh, designer. Oh, that's nice. So, so you kind of always knew your budget. So therefore you could play within that sandbox of your mm. camera tricks or techniques or what you wanted to do as a director. Now, did you plan sort of around that in terms of, oh, okay, I'm going to have steady cam for this amount of days. I'm going to use track here. Or was it a kind of, you know, did you plan to it's, you had that time now. So did you plan to its nth degree? I never looked at the budget in terms of, I was just like, I would work with each department and then be told that this wasn't possible, you know, but rather than kind of like keep it in, in mind. So like, you know, we choose an amazing location on the, on a roof, which would have required like some rigs and some things just because they're so safe, not because you actually needed that, but you know, and then be told you can have one roof for one day. You know, it was like, yes, it was more yeah. like that. And and kind of what we needed, like if we really, really needed a study, we tried like, uh, again, like I think, I'd say like the, the, yeah, the going kind of theme of the film was authenticity. So even with cinematography, once Wolf had his, once Wolf, once George had his wolf down and <laughs> we'd figure that out. And then it was, we just did a lot of like different attempts at how we would shoot it and what would work and what not. And I think initially me, how the DP who is fantastic mm -hmm. um, was quite convinced that a steady cam would be a really good idea. And I really disliked the study cam actually when we did it because it, first of all, A, it reminded me a bit too much like horror film potentially. Mm -hmm. And B, it also had this like artifice to it, which I felt was completely, you know, you felt cinema, you felt the camera. Mm. And I was like, look, everything we're doing here is like, well, we have to sell people that are, that think they're animal. Like we have to struggle to break down any them. kind of, you know? So then in fact, like, you know, often like just capturing and, and, and even then it was always like about a moment in the light and, a, and think, you know, and again, George is very collaborative with that. So like, you know, it would be like just again, trying and trying and like, actually just, just what looks animalistic, but also with him and Lily, it was always like, you know, just if you watch and watch and watch, and then suddenly you'd realize that, it was often the moments where they were just like slightly didn't know what to do and were just so present in themselves because that mm. kind of slowness is very animalistic when you're just like observing each other. And, and again, so then the camera just had to kind of find that. So often sticks or often being very close handheld and just being as truthful was, was, yeah, was, was the best. Yeah. Cause sometimes with Steadicam, like you say, it, it doesn't have that same feel or intimate feel as handheld where you can, like those moments you was talking about where an actor does do something or wait or move. Well, sometimes with a Steadicam now it feels too locked off or it feels, doesn't feel as connected whereas handheld can sometimes, and you can, your DP or your camera operator can find those moments better that, that work for you sometimes. You can get restricted. Obviously you need it for the walking, talking, stuff totally it's often better but when you're trying to find that intimacy or whatever it is i think it's so important to know those camera techniques and the fact that you knew that and was like no, no this feels better for me i want to use this way it's so important for a director um and it sounds like you had a good grasp on what you wanted which is great really important yeah no, it does it does feel like when you're watching it you are like an observer like a silent observer mm -hmm. that's just watching everything unfold um, mm. And it's very sort of subtle, and you're you're not aware that you're the watcher, but you are the watcher. And I think that that does sort of feel like a you know very useful part of buying the whole performances and the acting and the animals and and everything, and it kind of comes alive. Yes, because I love the big you had big wides, and then suddenly it would be you'd follow something, and then suddenly it'd be really close, and you'd have this really feel of the the animals breathing on you. And, and that that was wonderful. Um, I imagine there was a lot of sound design went into that as well. But when you were on set, talk us through how that felt. 
for, for, for those specific moments where you're like, oh, I want to push this a bit further and how you did that? It was really down to the fact that like everyone was so, you know, so open to, to kind of like pushing and to to giving so much of themselves. And I think, yeah, we, and we had it like 30 days. So like not a terrible amount of time, you know, Mm -hmm. so there was, was, and we were super, super prepared. So I think the fact being that prepared allowed us to have like, for example, George, the opening of the film, George in the woods, which is like priceless, wasn't in the script at all, but thanks to a rehearsal we did, um, so we were basically, we were rehearsing a different scene. Well, George was available and me and Miha wanted to block a scene and find a certain tree and blah, blah. And then George started crawling around and I was like, oh, Miha, try and like film him a little bit. Like he was, he took off his shirt and he was so white amidst this green. And I just thought, oh, this looks amazing. And I just thought, wow, like actually there's something really beautiful about him being a wolf in the wild, you know, cause he's always a wolf in the, in the clinic. And he'd always been that in the script and it just looked great. And, and, and I thought, you know what, like let's find the time in the day to basically add this, you know, to, to, to shoot this and shoot him uh being a wolf outside and then it became such a priceless part of the edit actually it's so nice did you find that that uh, with things like that that you could play within right let's just move the camera in let's see how did you talk to your dp during those times of what you wanted to get from the shots uh what was your sort of conversations like on set i mean in in things like that in the forest i mean we because we added that only later and because it was like a bit squished into the schedule and you know obviously there's like a a number of you know george is barefoot effectively it's quite uncomfortable like he never complains or but it's not like the easiest thing to do crawling around like that i remember when i was a deer it was no fun (laughs) yeah exactly you're a wrong experience of it but um (laughs) it's uh yeah so so for that like miha would go very into you know i had my monitor and he would kind of and he's like you know, we've, it's our second film together. So like, there's like kind of a good, I think, understanding of what I like and so on. So he would kind of shoot a bit and then we'd stop. And then he like, you know, he's just handheld falling around, sweating away. And then kind right. of we debate, discuss, like he'd change things. We'd need more of this. So it was like for that kind of stuff, it was more pit stop for everything else. Like most things we'd had conversations about like very extensively, like very, very extensively. So there wasn't a huge amount of improvising like shot wise on set unless something drastically changed, which it did at times. Yeah. So I think, yeah, our biggest kind of points of contention or discussion were how long it would take to light the set, you know, that was... it's always the way isn't it time not never enough time i suppose one question i would like to ask is the universal coming on board how that felt so yeah so so focus came on board at the script stage but before before we started shooting and it was yeah it was certainly like again when you were asking me before like how it felt with the fun like that was also one of those like top surreal moments where you're like really like incredible i think it was just yeah it was baffling almost and um yeah it was yeah it was an incredible moment really it was but i didn't i hadn't really understood that like universal that that, like wasn't totally clear to me so it was then in the in the in the mix like when we were doing the post that we first had like the universal globe and that Mm -hmm. was like that was also like certainly a moment because it was just like oh my god like our tiny little film like you know is but but um you know, and I'm super, super grateful. And obviously like it was, you know, also financially, it was like an incredible thing for the film. Like it just means that you're shooting without worrying that you're going to be in huge colossal debt, especially since it was our company, obviously getting loans out, doing this, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, loans for huge amounts during a pandemic where if one person got sick, we'd be shut down, right. actors would move on and you're basically screwed. So mm-hmm. having that, you know, it was a film of sold. So that was, um, it was a real relief and like a real comfort and then, but then, and again, it's not like it's just sort of like dis uh, universal in any shape or form. But I think just since this is a podcast for filmmakers, you know, there's studios also come with certain restrictions, you know, and, and obviously, especially if you're a small fish like we mm-hmm. are, and ultimately like a quite indie, quite art house film. And I think, you know, I think like what we you know, in terms of like then obviously that they will be kind of guided by box office numbers and mm-hmm. you know and and this film if we'd maybe sold it separately like i think 
to different territories. Like maybe we would have had more releases in different countries. I mean, they're just very different, I see. different pathways. And, and I think, you know, maybe that, that was like something I, I just, I had never thought of that. Like actually like a studio obviously has like a completely different agenda approach. Like, I mean, you, you, you are really just. And way of marketing as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's exactly. I think like as indie filmmakers, like you live and breathe those films, like everything is done for them. And you expect like, and I think even small distributors, like everyone like does everything for it until like beginning into the end. And again, I think Focus did an incredible job with the US. They really like pushed it and they put it in so many cinemas. And, you know, I've really like, nothing, nothing to say, but like ultimately when it came to the world and it was under the umbrella of such a big company, priorities are going to be made in terms of, you know, what's selling really. So that's, mm. you know, that's just a reality. Just, I guess it's just business, but I think when you're filming, you don't think of business that much. No. Yeah. And you can get frustrated by that. You're like, this is my soul. <laughs> yeah. It's my soul. Yeah. It's my film. And yeah, they're just going, oh, well, we've released it there now. We don't need to release it in other territories. Yeah. Totally hear that. Totally hear that. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? When as, as any film, I say, oh, one day I'll get this and, you know, we'll get distributed by this or we'll get this much money. But actually that comes with other issues as well. And we forget that. And actually it's, it's lovely for you to say that. Thank you. What did you learn on this one, Direct? that you'll take forward to the next one in terms of, again, something that would be great for our, our filmmakers? I mean, God, I learned so much, like everything I feel like I learned, but I guess, you know, again, I think, you know, the importance of rehearsals, I think was so invaluable on this. I've got to try and put, try and put it in our budgets, everyone, if you can get a bit of, because that's the problem when you, on an indie film and you try and cast people and you, they cost whatever they cost. And then you go, cool, can we have rehearsal? You go, well, we can't afford rehearsal. Or yeah. the agents go, we want this much for rehearsal. Like, well, that's not in our budget. So, but if you budget that early, especially if your director wants it, I think it's really important. Yeah. Rehearsals can save so much time on set. I think so. so. Yeah. Sorry, keep going. And it's just like, it gives you like room to like have more confidence when you're shooting, to play mm -hmm. more, to find new things, like, you know, a relationship with the actors. So yeah, so yeah, probably like number one, like making sure, I mean, I always, you know, wanted them for it, but this was the proof how useful they are. And, um, and the second thing, you know, what, what I learned, I just learned from Terry, like having, having him there like those exercises, which I'm not really sure I'd be able to like replicate entirely, but this like letting process of letting go and that, that work with the actors, which I found like quite transformative is something I would like to definitely like try and do again. Amazing. I had, I had last question. I have to know, <laughs> did you think about what animal you would be when you're going through this whole process? We were doing, um, we were, I mean, actually with my husband, he says it's a koala, oh, okay. but, but when I was, um, but when Brilliant, I was, thanks. <laughs> Charles is a deer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because they're also like quite, quite fierce, those koalas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. um, but actually when I was doing the rehearsals and the, and the workshop with the actors, cause I did participate as an animal as well. And I kind of, I don't know if it was because they were just outside the window, these seals, but I actually thought like a seal had, um, like I felt it, like actually like a, a big affinity with the seal because I love the water a lot, but also the land. And also they similarly have this sort of like duality between being like quite sweet, but also like a little bit scary. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, look, this has been so much fun. I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. Wolf is incredible film. It's so well made and so interesting and just the kind of thing that indie filmmakers should be going, let's be brave and make this and you've done it and you should be very proud. You should thank be very you. proud you've done this. It's incredible. Well, thank you for, for taking up your Sunday to chat about Wolves. Listen, you can go make your indie films. You can make it happen. Go out there, do it. Believe in your project, believe in your film, believe in your script and make it happen. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, you can send the end elevator. <laughs> the what? The envelope? <laughs> you send that elevator right back down. <laughs> uh, yes, send the elevator back down. We will see you next Tuesday, as always. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening. We love all your support and we love you to listen. Any questions, anything you've got about filmmaking, do get in touch. That's what it's all about. Natalie Biancari, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Have a lovely, lovely Sunday. And you. Bye. 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 Bye.